Again, my name is Jim. I'm the student pastor here at Maricopa Springs Family Church. Uh, it's great to have all of you here today. Um, so I had a couple things. Everybody knows what an icebreaker is, right? So I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, hey, I need to come up with an icebreaker. Like, I don't know. How's everybody liking the cold outside? Uh, I really prefer the other guy who does announcements. So I'm trying to come up with some things like that. And then, of course, he goes into his thing. And then, of course, Doug back there. Um, I love Doug. Doug's awesome. Um, so, as, uh, as Grady said, we're going to be in Luke, Luke 8. Um, so, have you ever wondered where a quote, a saying, a phrase that you've heard a million times comes from? There's one that we've all heard since we were kids. It started when we lost our first tooth or did the first tour around the house. It happened when somebody gave us that first shiny coin that first brand new dollar bill that our parents put in our hands. Quotes in God we trust. In the war of 1812, a fierce, fierce, sorry, forgive me guys, I've had some dental work, so sometimes speaking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of fuddle through my words a little bit. But in the war of 1812, there was a fierce battle that took place for Fort Henry just outside of Baltimore in 1814. A captured prisoner watched by under guard on board a British ship as the British laid in to Fort Henry with this massive bombardment. Um, one of the guards, as he watched this show of overwhelming force, told the, uh, or the uh, captured prisoner that all was lost, that the fort wouldn't be able to withstand this massive assault from the British fleet. That is when this man bowed his head and said these words for the first time. And his response to this British officer was, And God is our trust. The statement is one of faith. He would not trust in machines or bombs, walls of defense, or the men who manned him, manned them, sorry. His trust and faith was in God, so all was not lost. Win or lose this great battle, the man knew that the will of God would be done and that God was sovereign. The man, and many like him, that night put their trust in God, regardless of the battle's outcome. Now, for some of you, maybe this story sounds familiar, and if it does, it's because it's the story of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. In the fourth fourth verse, he writes those words that he spoke that night, and God is our trust. So, when difficulties arise, or tragedy strikes, where do you put your trust? Or just when the everyday, day-to-day things happen, good or bad, where do you look? Before you answer that question... Let me ask another. How often have you tried to solve the problem yourself? Or maybe you're asking others, asking others, hoping that the other person has or recently discovered the answer. Maybe you're relying on some self-help motivational book or some video or something like that. Or my own personal favorite, charging headlong into every problem wielding a 10-pound sledgehammer, hoping that at least one swing will land on the problem and fix it. And there was a time a few months back um, that got a little tough for me, uh, at least for a few days. I'd gotten a call from my sister um, late at night. She told me that my mother had lost consciousness and that she uh, was in the hospital and they, they think it was her heart. Now, two things that you need to know about this is that first, I'm, I'm a mama's boy. And I don't mean I love my mama. I mean I am a mama's boy and I always have been and I always will be. And the second thing is, is that other than to give birth, my mother's never been in the hospital. So I freaked out. I mean, I was on the plane the next day, 
And I'd love to sit here and tell you that it was because I wanted to be by the side of my mother, which in the part that was true. But the other part of it was is that I wanted to be there because I could fix it. That was me, right? I could fix it. I, was, I had to be able to fix it. Uh, I'd never had these emotions before. I'd never lost anyone close to me. So the thoughts and feelings I was dealing with um, were kind of new to me. So I started putting my trust in that 10-pound sledgehammer again. And uh, started kind of freaking out. Now, I sat at my desk, and instead of continuing to freak out, I bowed my head and I started to pray vigorously and asking God for help and guidance in this time. And uh, his answer back to me was, I've got this. Trust me. I've got this covered. And as I started going through the process of finding the rental car and the flight, I sort of slowly became calmer. And I realized that whatever God's, God's plan was, and he's got this. I can trust in him no matter what the outcome would be. I just needed to be with my family. I needed to be with my mom. I could put my hammer away and trust in his direction. Today we'll be in Luke 8, as we said, verses 40 through 56. And if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet, go ahead. If you're new here today or you don't have a Bible, after service today, just get with somebody near you as we're rummaging around They'll take you back to the bookstore. We'd love to get you one for free. They'll get you one. Make sure you do. Okay? So now before I get into the scripture and start reading, just three things I'd like to mention really quick about the scripture that we'll be in today. First, this crowd welcomed Jesus. And in fact, they were expecting him. At this point in Luke, he's performed, very many, or he's, he's performed many miracles and taught in many places. And they were excited to see him. But what were they exactly excited about? And the next thing is Jairus' position in Jewish community. This guy was at the top of the food chain, but he still had peers and other leaders that he had to answer to. If Jairus chose an unpopular opinion, it could get pretty ugly for him. In Acts 18, there's a story of a synagogue leader who was beaten for not ensuring the punishment of people spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember, Jewish leadership, Jesus was not well-liked. The last thing is Jewish cleanliness laws. Now again, remember, they hold strictly to these laws. And as we've learned through our time in Luke, that they would sometimes add to them, making them more cumbersome and heavier to carry. If you were bleeding, you were considered unclean for however long it would last, three days, a week. You were an outcast, you were unwanted, you were ritually unclean. So let's start, we'll look in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So here we're introduced to the crowd and Jairus. They welcomed Jesus back as we learned last week. Jesus was in the country of the Gerasenes, hopefully I didn't mispronounce that. Were, uh, where he saved a possessed man and sent him back home to be potentially our first missionary that we see. Now Jesus is back and people knew that he was coming. And they didn't have Facebook or Instagram back then, so I imagine they're out on their fishing boats, doing some fishing. Maybe they were traveling across the sea as well. Um, sorry. Either, either way, the people in the town, they knew that Jesus was coming. Word had gotten out and they were starting to gather an expectation of this arrival. Let me try and put it in a, in a today kind of uh, scenario. I mean, let me give you a comparison. Some of you will get it, some of you won't. If word had started to spread around town that Robert Downing Jr. was going to show up, so Iron Man, right? 
was going to show up, there'd be about 20 to 30,000 people standing on 347 right at the mouth of Maricopa waiting for him, right? So when Jesus shows up, steps off that boat, most of the people in town, well, they're waiting for him. The question is, why? Is it because they wanted to see this troublemaker? Was it so that they could say that they met the famous Jesus and that they could tell all their friends and families about the time when they did? Was it because they were drawn to the shore looking for an answer? Were they looking for relief or maybe they were just looking, in the direction, looking for the direction to look in? I believe it was all of these reasons. And it's no different today. I mean, there's still a crowd and there's still all sorts of reasons that we're in it. Jesus is meeting and talking with the people in the crowd and this man walks up. Jerry is the leader of a local synagogue, comes through the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus implores him to come and help his daughter. Jerry's daughter has been sick and now she is dying. He comes to Jesus, but before that, where did Jerry's look? He has money to get the best doctors, the money to buy the most expensive medicines, the clout and respect to get any persons or group of people to come and help him. And because of his position in the community, he probably would have been following all the Jewish laws, structured praying ceremonies, maybe doing good deeds throughout the community, trying to earn God's favor, thinking that it was a matter of works. Jairus would have probably done all of these things. He would have spared nothing. Now, the text doesn't tell us tell us how long she was sick or what Jerry has tried to do to save her. We just know what we would have done if she were our daughter. Everything. We probably would have burned the city down if we thought it would help. I would have been looking for that 10-pound sledgehammer again. But none of this would help. All of Jerry's power, money, respect is not going to save his little girl. She is going to die. How much of our time, how much, of, how much time did he waste trying to find the right direction, and always looking in the wrong one. And then I wonder, how much of our time do we spend doing the same thing? None of it worked. Jarius lost hope in everything that he knows and everything that he has. And maybe you're feeling the same way. Nothing you're doing is helping. The situation isn't getting any better. And you want change, but it just doesn't happen. Jarius gets the news that Jesus is coming. He knows who Jesus is. Jairus knows that Jesus has healed the sick and has possibly heard the story of Jesus raising the dead son of the widow of the town and name in Luke 7. Jairus stops putting his trust in what he, what he has in his position that he has, or position that he holds, and looks to Jesus. To make this point a little bit further for you, I told you earlier about how Jewish leadership felt about Jesus and what could happen to someone in Jewish leadership if they embrace an unpopular opinion or belief. When Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, he's not just giving up all to Jesus and looking to him and him alone for the answers. He's committing political, financial, and social suicide, maybe even risking his own life. Possibly sending his family to be outcasted. Because of the gift of faith that God, from God, he now completely trusts in Jesus, no matter the outcome. He went to the shore that day to seek the Son of God because Jesus has revealed himself to Jairus. Something changes in him, and he knows there is only one thing that he can put his trust in, 
And that's Jesus. Now I want you to imagine you're on the shore. Jesus is there with his disciples. There's several hundred people. And they're all moving towards town where Jairus' home is, where his daughter lies dying. I want you to imagine the sense of urgency that Jairus would have, that everyone would have, right? I mean, think about this. This is his only daughter. He is probably trying to move these people along as fast as he can in an impossible task. It'd be like trying to move Johnny Depp with a crowd surrounding him through Disneyland. I think he's Disney now, right? So trying to move him through Disneyland like in an afternoon. I mean, this just wouldn't happen. Now, of course, we don't have cameras or they didn't have cameras or autograph books or a bunch of crazy tourists running around back in Jesus' day. So it'd be possible. But I have to imagine that this crowd with Jesus would be moving very slowly. You'd have thought that Jerry's would have been out of his mind with concern, but he wasn't. He walked with Jesus on their way to his home to save the life of his daughter. He was calm. We can see Jairus' trust and faith because he's not freaking out. He walks with Jesus and he trusts him completely. Again, no matter the outcome. Now, as we continue on our way to the home of Jairus, we meet the second person in our story. And let me read verses 43 through 44 for you. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Here we meet this woman, and the text tells us for 12 years that she was bleeding. And I mentioned uh, mentioned earlier about the Jewish cleanliness laws and bleeding. And in the Old Testament, if you have time later and there's nothing going on when you get home, you can look it up, Leviticus 15, a little light reading. It goes through the laws for bleeding and being unclean. Who's considered unclean? What would happen to a person if they were? And a woman was considered unclean for as long as she was bleeding or menstruating. If you touch anyone, you would be unclean, or that person would be unclean. I mean, this was a big deal. If you were unclean, it meant that you were ritually unclean, so you wouldn't be able to go to temple or worship. So you didn't go out and you didn't touch anyone, especially a teacher like Jesus. Now, she wasn't unclean for three days or a week. She was unclean for 12 years. This means her life was one of loneliness, no contact with anyone, her family, her friends, community. If she'd had a husband, he'd probably have left. Her life would have been difficult. The woman, had, uh, the, the woman was lost. She had tried everything. In Mark's telling of the story, it says how she'd suffered under the care of many doctors. Seeing a doctor now is difficult. I mean, could you imagine what it would have been like back then? I mean, their knowledge around germs, anatomy, basic sterilization techniques, like, I mean, like clean water, right? Often going to the doctor back then would have been extremely painful. If you were sick, it could possibly even make you sicker, as in the case of this woman. And on top of that, they were just as expensive now as, or then as they are now. She was shunned by society. She was an outcast, unwanted, unable to worship and possibly feeling unable to really know God. And have you ever felt like that lost, alone, no hope? She put her trust and faith in doctors that said they could help her, but they couldn't. They just prolonged her suffering. She tried everything and failed, and they failed. She was looking in the wrong direction. She too knew who Jesus was. 
She had possibly heard the story of the healing of the leper in Luke 5. Like Jerry, she would have heard that Jesus was coming. Now, remember, if she'd been caught in the center of town or if she'd touched someone, she probably could have been stoned or if she was lucky, maybe just beaten, kicked back to her home. And knowing all of this, this woman leaves the safety of her home and goes into a public area, into a huge, constantly moving, crushing crowd, reaches out to touch the fringe of Jesus' shawl in faith. She has spent 12 years trying to fix the problem herself and lets go of everything and puts her trust and faith in Jesus alone. Now, after the woman touches the pressure of Jesus and is healed, there's this interruption. And the simple version of this story would be that the woman is healed. She goes back home. She gets married, goes on with her life. Jesus makes it to the home of the synagogue leader and heals his daughter. All is good. And the end. But that's not what happens here. Instead, something else happens, which I have to believe had to be incredibly shocking to everyone who knew where they were heading. Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? And he just stops. Now, when's the last time that you just saw an ambulance, for instance, just stop with a life on board, somebody seriously, critically injured, just stop in the middle of the road, pull off to the side? We see this play out in verse 45 and 46. It says, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are all crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Now, it doesn't say, but, that this, but this inquiry doesn't happen while Jesus and this huge crowd is moving through town. Now, they, they stop or stalled, if you will. And I want you to put yourself in that crowd. The whole procession stops and Jesus asks, who touched him? And with the gravity of this situation being known, this must have been an extremely tense moment. For everyone, but for one person in this crowd, that probably was a lot more tense than, than, than the rest. And that's the woman. The woman because she was the one that touched Jesus. But this is great, right? I mean, the woman has suffered for 12 years, and now she gets to have her life back. I mean, this is great. But she shouldn't be there. She definitely shouldn't be touching someone like Jesus. Remember, she is unclean. She could be punished or harmed for what she is doing. She thought she would be able to go unnoticed, but Jesus notices her. And Jesus stops everything to acknowledge her. Jesus reveals himself further by drawing her out. See, in verse 47, it says, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at the feet of Jesus in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Trembling, the scripture says. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She te- it, Jesus tells her in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus not only heals her, but he welcomes her back as a daughter of the promise. She is drawn to him. The gift of faith has led her to the center of town where she reaches out, touches the edge of Jesus' shawl, and is healed. What an amazing moment. The woman can't hide. Jesus knows her heart. He sees her. He acknowledges her. Jesus welcomes her home. Some of you here have felt that moment. Some of you are still waiting. 
Now, the woman is healed in front of the entire crowd, and for the majority of them, this is exactly what they wanted. They were hoping to see this miracle. They get the big show, but they miss what was really important. Let me try and put it a different way. Let me not blow this illustration, and if I do, I apologize. So after Robert Downey Jr. shows up to town, right, he decides he wants a relationship with us, which would be so cool. Okay? But what if, he, what if it's not just Robert Downey Jr. versus Iron Man, and he starts blowing some stuff up too, right? <laughs> Bear with me. Hang on. Stay with me. And he blows some stuff up. Most of us would never stop talking about that. And a lot of us might even be telling our family and friends that we met our bro, Robert, right? You know, Iron Man, our bro. The problem here, guys, the problem here is, is that we don't know him. We don't know him. And for most of the people in that crowd, they didn't know Jesus. They just wanted to see stuff blow up. They just came for the miracle. They wanted to be able to say that they know him without Jesus being in their heart. They want all of the reward, but they don't want any of the risk. They didn't want to let go of trying to fix their problems themselves. So their direction that they're looking in, it just never changes. Does this sound like anyone you know? So the story continues. A man comes from the home of Jairus with news. And in verse 49 it says, When a man from from Jairus' house comes and tells them his daughter is dead. And could you imagine what Jairus felt? Or the woman? Mm, I can. Trust and faith. Jesus hears what is said. And he says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And he does. There is no doubt that Jairus Jairus trusts and believes. The scripture doesn't say here, but after the news, they simply just continue to the home. There is no mention of Jairus being angry at Jesus or the woman for the earlier delay. There is no mention of the woman being distraught with guilt or grief because of her role in that delay. No, there's none of that. They just continue on their way, and when they get, to the, when they get there, Jesus, Peter, John, James, and the immediate family, Jairus and his wife, go into the home. Jesus takes the hand of this little girl and simply says, My child, get up. And she did. Trust and faith. Two people, they had it. They spent their time, money, influence, and suffered trying to solve their tragic situations themselves. Both of them unable to do so. The woman spent 12 years suffering, trying all that was available to her, but with nothing, with loneliness and pain to show for it. Jairus used the power and money that his position provided him to help his daughter, but that wouldn't stave off death. Both Jairus and the woman realized something that most of the people in that crowd did not. Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is the Messiah. Now please understand something. The tragic situation wasn't that the woman was an outcast and suffered for 12, or excuse, forgive me, the woman wasn't an outcast for 12 years, or that Jairus' daughter was sick and was going to die. The tragic situation was that before all of this, they didn't know Jesus. The amazing and glorious part of this story isn't that the woman was healed and Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The amazing and glorious part of this story was that they found Jesus. And for you here today, will you risk everything? Completely abandon your grip on the worldly things that you have trusted in for so long. 
Or are you thinking that you'll hang on to them just a little bit longer? Maybe you think you believe and trust in Jesus, but you're still thinking, if I ask or pray in the right way or in the right church, Jesus will fix my tragic situation. Trouble at work, health issues, money problems. Maybe you're thinking, if I pray and I do the right stuff well enough, my relationships won't fall apart. Never understanding. It's about faith, not works. I feel that this is a really good, important time for this disclaimer. And, and I forgive, forgive me if I offend anybody, but God is not your cosmic vending machine. You don't get to p- put a prayer in, hit B12 and get what you want. The story is not about asking God for stuff. It's not even about him intervening in a difficult situation. This story is about two people who stopped putting their faith and trust in themselves and started putting it in Jesus. When Jairus goes to the shore to ask Jesus to heal his only daughter, he isn't there just because he heard that Jesus can heal people. Jairus is there because he knows that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus offers more than just physical healing. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus because he knows who Jesus is, because he knows Jesus is the Messiah. His faith and trust, his trust and faith in Jesus, he has trust and faith in Jesus no matter the outcome. And the woman is the same. She reaches out to touch the shawl of Jesus because she knows who he is and what he has to offer. The woman's trust and faith in Jesus is not because of the outcome of her situation, but it's because of the desperate and broken heart that can only be healed through her equally desperate need for Jesus. So let me close this out for you. The question for you is, are you in the crowd or who are you in this crowd? Is your trust and faith in Jesus complete? For those of you here today that would say yes and profess to be a Christian, do you wake up every morning trusting in Jesus no matter the outcome? If not, then ask yourself, why not? For those of you that have never put your trust in God or those only have or only have done it when bad things happen but rarely in your daily lives, Maybe you're still wielding that 10-pound sledgehammer trying to fix it yourself, never changing the outcome or your direction. Let me tell you something that took me 40 years to figure out. Maybe I can save you some time. You can't fix it. You don't have the answer. And the only solution to your tragic situation is Jesus because not knowing Jesus is what's tragic. It sounds harsh and very blunt. And I want to be truly honest with you I would love to stand up here and wish I could embellish my wording and make it sound like some great, mind-blowing, life-changing, beautiful statement that would help you change your direction and get you to put your trust and faith completely in Jesus. I mean, after all, maybe that's why some of you are here today, but I can't. And even if I could, it wouldn't matter what I would say. What will matter is when the Holy Spirit comes knocking on the door of your heart Will you open your heart in that moment? That moment when you feel or see God working in your life or in the life of someone else. My hope and my prayer for each one of you, wherever you are in this crowd, is that you would be like Jarius or the woman and all the others that found, their, uh, found what, they, uh, what they found. That you would stop spending your time and effort to fix it yourself. That you would stop being an outcast 
that you would stop suffering and fall at the feet of Jesus in joy. And I've gone on for a while now. So let me end with this scripture. I believe it sums it up very, very well. It's something I kept on the pages as I wrote this sermon. It's in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 